coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, how the hard lessons we learned in 1982 could be applied to 2015's security breaches, hacking for hire goes big, and then savage sentient cars that need new programming. Then it's a great big batch of your feedback, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi everyone and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 218 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on June 4th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Our live stream, I'm glad you asked. That's powered by Scale Engine over at scaleengine.com. Seriously, go check that out. My name is Chris and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Alan, I am looking forward to today's episode because I know it is just right before you head out to go to BSD Can. Yes. And I know when you get back, that means our episode's going to be, or the episode following that's going to be packed full of stories. And I get to watch your adventures at BSD Can and also Noah's adventures at uh, Southeast Linux Fest. And I'm going to sit back. Mm-hmm cry a little bit and pour myself a drink and wait for you guys to yes. return. you know, if, if you had just got, got my your passport, gear, you could have mm-hmm. came with me, but no. So it turns out all those stories about passports taking a while uh, are actually legit, and I should have paid attention. Yeah. You know what else I need to pay attention to? Apparently, and I didn't even know this, what's in my Tylenol? Tylenol, Ellen? No, no, this is just a, a, an analogy that works. Oh, all right, give so it to anyway. me. DFF has a great post talking about the current uh, arguments about cybersecurity and the laws the government is trying to pass. Yeah. And so they mentioned the Tylenol murders from back in 1982, which is before I was even born. It's like the year you were born, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So when a criminal started lacing Tylenol capsules with cyanide in 1982, Johnson Johnson, the company that makes Tylenol, quickly sprang into action to ensure consumer safety. It increased its internal production controls to make sure it wasn't happening at the plant side and recalled all the capsules and made new ones and offered to exchange any tablets, e- even though people had already bought and weren't sure about them. You could just trade them and they would deal with it. Uh, and they said within two months of starting, they used a uh, triple seal tamper-resistant packaging and a bunch of stuff like that. The company focused on fixing the weak points in the supply chain that allowed someone to poison the pills instead of worrying about who did it. Right, And that way, uh, it was impossible for anyone to interfere with the product before you bought it. You know, this story is taught in business schools as an example of how a company chose to be proactive in protecting its customers. Uh, you know, the FDA passed regulations requiring security and Congress ultimately passed an anti-tampering law uh, and that forced other companies to do it. Yeah. But these guys did it themselves first because it's their brand reputation. They want that medicine to be the one you can trust. So is uh, the equivalent and, we're supposed the to... Focus of, uh, so the focus... Um, both of them, the private sector and the public sector, back in the 80s, was to ensure that consumers could uh, get safe and secure access to their medication, rather than catching the one person that was poisoned a couple of bottles with cyanide. Yeah. Right. Indeed, the person who actually did the tampering was never caught. Hmm. But that wasn't the important thing. They made it so that you couldn't tamper with the pills without it being obvious, mm-hmm. and that solved the problem. You know, if only we could learn from examples like this in the case of internet security uh, or just security in general instead of the crap that we deal with now. So do you, you know, think like in, a, in terms of like, like, like Cisco or vendors should recall their products if they have a flaw? Um, not maybe so much that. It's just that we need to spend more time worrying about how we can make people safe and less time worrying about blaming people. Mm. 
or, or you know, pointing our fingers the at the Chinese. Guy. Yeah. Yes. Instead of pointing our fingers at the Chinese, we should be pointing our fingers at, well, you fell for a phishing scam. You should stop doing that. <laughs> yeah. And things of that nature, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so say, to folks who understand computer security and networks, it's plain that the key problem is our vulnerability, our vulnerable infrastructure and weak computer security. Uh, and it's, you know, like the vulnerabilities in Johnson Johnson's supply chain back in the 80s. And then the failure to secure our networks, the services we rely upon, and our and for individual companies, uh, making it easy for bad actors to step in and poison our information. Right? If the companies that had our private information, say like those three insurance companies we talked about last week, if they did a better job of protecting our data, we wouldn't be dealing with this problem right, right. now, would we? Right. Correct. So if our uh, if we were to approach this as a safety problem, the way forward is clear. We need better incentives for companies to store our data and keep it secure. You know, the fact is there are broad uh, agreements that it, you know, it's, we could easily raise the bar against cyber thieves and spies. Uh, you know, known vulnerabilities frequently go unpatched, right? The New York Times uh, reported that the JP Morgan hack be- happened because they had an unpatched server running in there, and it was a common known exploit mm-hmm. that somebody just managed to use and get in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, information is too often stored in the clear rather than encrypted, and too often accidentally exposed to the internet. There's no excuse for any of that. <clears throat> and also, you have many devices like smartphones and tablets are increasingly store our entire lives on them, have all kinds of sensitive data, but don't get key security updates because, you know, Samsung doesn't give a shit. It's out of date. It's no longer the current product anymore. Yeah, it's like, oh, there's a security vulnerability in our product, but what you should do is buy this better version of our product, Mm -hmm. not we should fix that for you. Right. Because it's not like there's something physically wrong with the hardware. They don't need to replace the device. Software update. Mm -hmm. It's not hard. Mm -hmm. Version Mm -hmm. control. You know, they can can maintain their new version and still write bug fixes for the old version. You know, this this has been a solved problem since the 70s. Yeah. But so the EFS point is not only has Congress failed to address the need for increased computer and network security, but uh, key parts of the government are actually actively working to undermine our safety, right? The FBI continues to demonize strong cryptography, trying instead to sell the public on their technologically stupid strategy uh, that will actually make us less safe. Right. Repeating the mistakes of the 90s that right. are coming back to bite us constantly. Right. We've seen that with Poodle and Freak and what was the newest one? The one that was specifically because of the export grade encryption requirements, right? Well, there was two, right? There was the there was the one that was freak, right? It's the export grade, and then the second one was, uh, or poodle maybe. One of them was export grade, and the second one was about the Diffie Hellman ones. It was like two or three weeks yes, ago. Yes, yes, yes. That one too. Yeah. Uh, the equally outrageous, uh, the recent logjam. That was the name. Logjam vulnerability showed that the NSA has been spending billions of our tax dollars to exploit weaknesses in our computer security, weaknesses caused by the government's own ill-advised regulation in the 90s, rather than actually helping us solve the problem. So what can we do to actually solve the problem? We need to ensure that companies who we entrust our data to have clear, enforceable obligations to keep it safe from bad guys. Mm. Right? We can't just say you have to encrypt it. We have to actually come up with standards that say, you know, it has to be encrypted in this way and the key is stored in this way and only these people can access. Otherwise, you know, it's like, oh, well, it's an unencrypted drive, but it, it was mounted on the server. So they hacked into the server and it was mounted so they could access it as if it wasn't encrypted. Right? Not yep. good enough. Right. Or it was encrypted, but we left the key laying around right beside it. And so they just stole both. <laughs> uh, but this includes who handles it 
directly and those who build the tools and that we use to store and otherwise handle the, our own data, right? In the case of Johnson & Johnson, product liability law made the company responsible for harm that comes uh, due to behavior of others if safer designs were available and they just didn't use them. Uh, you know, if the attack's foreseeable and the company knows that they have a way they could fix it, but they just don't, they're legally liable. Mm -hmm. But not so much in the computer, partly because the law and the court just don't understand the ah, true. computer security stuff. You know, similarly, hotels and restaurants are, uh, that open their doors to the public have obligations under the law for uh, premises liability and take reasonable steps to keep you safe, even if the danger comes from other people. Right? People who hold your physical stuff for you, the law calls them baileys. Uh, they have a responsibility to take reasonable steps to protect your belongings from being stolen hmm. or other external forces. Yeah. And why does that not apply to companies that have our data? You know, in Canada, we have the Personal Information and uh, Private Documents Act that, you know, says, you know, if a company's going to store your data, they have to store it in a locked room and, you know, only certain people are, only those who really need to have to have, are allowed to have access to the room and so on. But it doesn't, it's not quite new enough to extend to, to digital document storage. And too often that's, oh, it's all in a spreadsheet laying there on a Windows file share that everybody in the company can access. Mm -hmm. And somebody's going to accidentally reshare that you know, with their uh, file sharing software or something ridiculous. Uh, I remember, what was it? Years ago on a very early tech snap, it was the, the routes the presidential limo was going to take or something got leaked over LimeWire because some uh, yes. contractor installed it, it on the machine and it, shared, and it, and it reshared the entire network share over the internet. Good memory, Alan. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, going back to the EFF story. Looking at the congressional debate, it's as if the answer for America's uh, after the Tylenol incident was not to put tamper evidence seals, but to increase this uh, security on the supply chain, uh, but only to require Tylenol to share its list of customers with the government uh, and with the folks at Bear Aspirin, right? Like the current, all the laws the government's trying to pass now about cybersecurity are just to allow companies to share data or force them to share data and to allow the FBI and the NSA to do more things. And to identify so, those companies for doing it. Yeah. So if, if, if we applied the current government logic to the 1982 case, Tylenol would have to give the government a list of everybody who's ever taken Tylenol <laughs> and give that list of, to the aspirin company. Yeah. Uh, instead of securing the supply chain and using tamper-evident uh, seals on the pills. Right? We wouldn't have stood for such wrong-headed response in 1982, and we shouldn't be standing for it now. Yeah, but for some reason, I think because it's of a technical nature, we are. Yeah, people just, oh, that's hacker stuff. I don't understand it. Well, the government doesn't either, and you're just going to let them ride rudshod and just make yeah. a mess. So yeah. we got to stop this. Uh, so I have extra links. Uh, the usnews.com has a cybersecurity bill with the White House. Support uh, may weaken both network security and privacy. And separately, uh, PBS has a story on the uh, uh, that Tylenol. Thing okay. if you want to know more about that. Hmm, yeah, that's a good reference. Good, that's a good hmm. comparison. But uh, yeah, it's just it, they did a really good job of, of bringing that up and making the point. Like, if we applied the logic they used on that case now, right. we'd be good. Yeah. And if we applied the logic we're using now on that case, we'd be like, that's retarded because hey, what we're trying to do now to solve it is not going to help. Good one, Alan. Thank you for pointing that out. 
Um, let's take a moment and talk about IX Systems. Let's go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap right now, friends. Won't you go there and help support the TechSnap program and check out what IX Systems has to offer. They, of course, have rigs built around those amazing Intel processors. Free pre-purchase cons- consultation, and it really is a great process with accurate quotes, on-time delivery, and they build those servers to meticulous quality with white glove post-purchase support. That's, that's the biggest thing, I think, is uh, normally... You know, if, if a company offers fast shipping, it's going to be something already built off the shelf and they're just going to put it in a box and send it to you. Mm-hmm. But IX is like, all right, we're going to custom build this machine for you. We're going to test it for three days and we're still going to get it to you by the time we promise. Yeah, they are and amazing. It's just like having that the combination of custom built, tested, and guaranteed for me and still getting it as quickly as possible it just makes a big difference to me. Walt Disney World, Sony, Cox Communications, Adobe, Noah. I mean, these are just a couple yeah. of other customers. Well, for example, at Scale Engine, we just found out yesterday and even more today that we're going to need a lot more storage and we're going to need it soon. And it's like, okay, well, we need this very custom super storage server and we need it on exactly this date and <coughs> we need it to arrive at a data center yeah. and with all the extra paperwork involved. And, and you wouldn't and even consider getting it somewhere else. You wouldn't get it no, anywhere else, no. It it's just, yeah, it wouldn't make sense to go anywhere else. They just wouldn't be able to handle our special requests. And also, uh, don't forget, they are, of course, also the folks that uh, are behind the PCBSD project and Chris Moore over there. And uh, version 10.1.2 is out. I like their, pro- yes. their kind of positioning as like those of you who are security conscious. That's a good positioning. Yeah, uh, Chris did a lot of really interesting work on that stuff. Uh, they have a thing now where your home directory can live on an encrypted USB stick. Uh, and, you know, if you pop it out, then nobody else can access your files. But it, uh, Chris built it partly for himself because he found every time he was going to a conference, he, need, he wanted to take all of his work with him. Mm. So if it just lived, he bought the, uh, was it, uh, SanDisk makes a... Uh, uh, an SSD yeah. that is actually it's, instead of a USB it's actually like 128 gig SSD so that's what his home drive home directory lives on and it's encrypted and he just moves it between you know his desktop or his laptop or whatever machine he's using uh, but they also built another one so they have a Tor mode obviously where you can just route all your traffic over Tor but they also have another one where when you log in as the anonymous user it does an encrypted it, it creates a new encrypted file system uh, and immediately throws away the key and then puts your home directory on that. So all the things you do are written there, and as soon as you log out, uh, when you unmount the encryption, the key's already been destroyed. There's no way to decrypt that data. That's cool. So that's, that's you, can, you can do a, like, it has basically like your browser's um, private viewing mode, mm-hmm. but for your whole home directory. Yeah. So everything you do gets erased when you log out. Gosh, that is cool. And that's just some of the talent from the folks mm-hmm. at IX Systems. IXSystems.com slash TechSnap. Go there, check them out, and support the TechSnap program. Thank you, IX, for supporting the TechSnap show. Hope you guys have yes. a great conference. Alan, do you want to talk about this story uh, regarding uh, the IRS and uh, the yes. leaking of all of these records right around tax season, too? Oh, goody. Yeah, well, I think we kind of touched on it but didn't have the same level of detail uh, yeah. when we talked about it with Krebs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yes, so the IRS reports that thieves stole tax data on over 100,000 people. Uh, in particular, the sophisticated criminals used the online service run by the IRS to access personal tax information on more than 100,000 taxpayers, uh, part of an elaborate scheme to steal identities and claim fraudulent tax returns. Uh, so they used the Get Transcript feature on the IRS website 
so the IRS is very uh, specific, to be clear, that they weren't actually hacked. Yeah. Uh, the, what the attackers did is just went to the IRS website and logged in as all these different people and got their tax information and then used it to file ta- fake returns. So in this case, the attackers already had all their personal information. They had your social security number, your uh, date of birth, your address, and all the answers to the security questions that IRS is going to ask. Then they could just log in as you and get your last year's tax information. Right. Then they would just use that and just uh, lower the withholding number by a big chunk and refile exactly the same tax return. Mm. So all the numbers and all the, like your employee, everything looks legitimate. Yeah. Except you get a big fat refund sent to the wrong place. <laughs> sent to the right place for somebody. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, the IRS is, 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 this is different than your regular compromise because they're actually using a legitimate service and they, they were only accessing accounts where they actually knew all the information about the person they were accessing. Yeah, right. So as far as the IRS system could tell, originally, um, it looked like the real person logging in and just downloading their tax transcript. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so the agency estimates that in 2013 alone, they paid out $5.8 billion in fraudulent uh, tax returns. Which seems like a lot of money. Five point eight billion, not million. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oof. Yikes. And you know, if the thieves are doing a hundred thousand people at eight thousand dollars a piece or whatever, that's adds up pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, they say the thieves tried to access over two hundred thousand accounts, but were only successful in about half of the cases because they didn't have maybe all the information. Or if you moved and they had your old address, they wouldn't be able to get in and so on. Uh, the IRS will notify all of those who had an attempt against their account. Uh, and in the case of those where they actually uh, manage to get in and steal your tax transcript, uh. the IRS will provide credit monitoring. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> but uh, those who are in the 100,000 that didn't get breached uh-huh. but are going to get notified, they need to be especially careful because the IRS isn't giving them free credit monitoring, but the bad guys have at least most of their information already to, att- to have attempted it in the first place, right? Jeez Louise. So those people need to carefully monitor stuff themselves. Hmm. Uh, as is most likely that the thieves already have most of your sensitive data and we're just missing one piece or something to have been successful against your account. But this uh, actually uh, makes me wonder if this is actually a symptom of another breach. Uh, Did the attackers steal this data from somewhere else to get the SSNs and the addresses and the birth dates and then just use it against the IRS? Right, because uh, for a while there was uh, speculation that it was one of the tax filing companies, uh, the TurboTax or something. Yeah. Uh, although that didn't seem to be the case, but it'd be interesting to see if there's any commonalities between the two hundred thousand people who are getting notified about this. Yeah. Which you know, was there one place that had the information on all of those people, and you know, can we find how the bad guys got the information on that many people? Because it seems like it was just more bulk than the regular identity theft type things. I, uh, I I look at this kind of thing, you know, a lot of times and I think, okay, what could have the general, you know, consumer have done differently in this particular scenario? I don't really think, like, we couldn't say, boy, if you just would have done X, Y, Z, you wouldn't have had this issue. They went yeah. to do something to take care of their taxes. They went through a company that supposedly checked out and approved by the United States government. Well, they, I, we don't know that it was a tax company that would cause the leak. It could have been anything. It could have been the health uh, care providers that were behind this, right? You know, that was lots of people's information that contains a lot of that same stuff. Uh, so we don't know how they got it. But um, we do want to, they, they didn't specify whether um, this was them accessing existing accounts or if it was, a, you remember we 
uh, when we had the Krebs story, it was go sign up for the IRS's mm-hmm. web service yeah. so that someone else can't sign up as yes. you. Yes, yes, I do remember um, that. And I wonder if maybe that's what was this case was, was people uh, signing up for the IRS account that weren't the real person. Yeah. And in those cases, maybe some people could have prevented this by having signed up ahead of time. Yeah. But if you didn't know you needed to do that, then that's not much you can do about right. it ahead of time or retroactively. That could have been it. That could have been the saving grace, but who knows for sure. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the end, some of the blame should go on the IRS. Yeah. It seems that their online system doesn't have a very good intrusion detection system. Yeah. If, if it's a small set of IPs that are attempting to access 200,000 accounts, that should trigger some alarms. <laughs> Um, you know, it's like if the same IP address is accessing more than a couple of accounts, you should wonder why. <laughs> uh, and especially if they were trying to access 200,000 accounts and 100,000 of those fails, that's a lot of log. You know, if, if the same IP address is failing to log in a bunch of times, you should look into that. And if it's thousands of times, you should probably block them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and so, if, the, if the other thing is true, where people had to go create their accounts before somebody else could snag them, uh, that also could be probably put on the IRS too for like yeah. that <laughs> setting the system up like that. That's pretty bad. <laughs> right. Gosh. Well, they, at the same time, you don't want them to just bulk create everybody's accounts and mail your. No, it's true because that's. Yeah, but yeah, suppose. like I said, in the Canadian version of the system, when you sign up, you can't use it for the first couple of weeks, and you have to get mailed uh, an access code that you have to put in to prove it was you and a bunch of stuff. That makes they have sense. some extra security into it. Yeah. All right, Alan, uh, are you ready for me to take a moment to talk about DigitalOcean? Sure. All right, well, let me mention DigitalOcean then. It's a place you should go check out if you listen to this show. They're perfect for you. If you need a back-end infrastructure for a project, if you need to do some development testing, or if you just want to learn, DigitalOcean is a great resource. It's a simple cloud hosting provider that's dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. And they've really embraced a lot of ways for you to be able to get going fast. They have hourly pricing if you just want to do some testing, which is really slick. They also are really on board with container technology. So if you want to create something locally and develop it and then move it up to DigitalOcean Droplet for further testing and put it up on a public address, it's great for that. I mean, you can do it in minutes. In fact, you can get started in less than 55 seconds at DigitalOcean. That's incredible. And pricing plans start only $5 a month. That'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, because they're all SSD. And of course, when you get that, you also get one CPU and a terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean has data center locations all over the place. They got them in New York. They got them in San Fran. They got them in Singapore, Amsterdam, the Germany. And the one in the Germany is super nice because it's got all of mm-hmm. the connectivity to its neighbors. And, they, well, and it's brand new and uses their fastest network connections. As yeah, 40 SSDs. gigabit eek to each hypervisor, their fastest SSDs yet. Plus, then they're at that central tr- uh, transfer point right there. I mean, that is a great spot to set up a regional data center. Uh, and uh, they've got them in London and uh, as well. They're, but really, really, what you're really going to notice once you become a DigitalOcean customer is the interface. And it's still to this day, yep. after they've been a, a sponsor for a while, and I was, a, I was actually a customer before they were a sponsor, uh, I, I'm still still impressed by this interface. It really is top-notch. You can create your droplets here. You get full DNS management. You can take snapshots, and from those snapshots, you can 
do templates, which is really cool. You can transfer snapshots to other DigitalOcean accounts. I like the snapshots to do, to do templates. Uh, we just have a base rig. We templated that one time, and then we just build on top of that most of the time. And of course, beyond that, you've also got one-click installations for things like Ruby on Rails, Docker, GitLab, uh, Ghost, WordPress. A lot of really good technology is just one-click installation away. Either one-click of the application, or you can say, deploy the entire Ubuntu 14.04 stack with all of these things on there. And they're not, it's not some sort of hocus-pocus. They just give you an Ubuntu rig with the software installed from the repos that you just update with the operating system updates. And by the way, DigitalOcean is hiring. They've asked me to mention it to you guys because they want to hire from the Jupiter Broadcasting audience because there's a good chance you're pretty savvy. So they're looking for all kinds of positions right now. So go over there and check it out. Uh, they have over... Uh, uh, I think it was last time I looked. Here, here we go. Few openings. Yeah, here we go. Look at all these spots they have open. They have a bunch of spots open in engineering, uh, including network administrator, software engineer, technical program manager. Uh, they're also looking for a technical writer, uh, for a full-time technical writer to help with some of their tutorials because they have a lot of really great tutorials at DigitalOcean. And Alan, check this out. Check mm -hmm. this out. They get free lunch every day at DigitalOcean. And they get gym yeah. reimbursement. <coughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Man, that don't, listen, people at Jupiter Broadcasting, don't look at that. I can't compete. Go to DigitalOcean.com, but remember this important thing. you got to use our promo code SNAPOcean. SNAPOcean gives you a $10 credit. All right, that's nice. But really, more than $10, you're going to keep the TechSnap program on the air for the long term. That lets DigitalOcean know that their sponsorship of the TechSnap program was worth their time and money. So use the promo code yep. SNAPOcean, you'll get a $10 credit. And the great thing about DigitalOcean is you can apply that to your account before you even add a credit card. I really like that. What I, I have a separate PayPal account that I've had for a bajillion years that every now and then I'll throw a couple of dollars in that I use just for Steam games. Well, the Steam games never run my PayPal account down all the way to zero. And so as my, as my DigitalOcean account gets a little low, I just toss a few coins into that and it keeps it running because the value is insane and we use the promo code SNAPOcean you get the $10 credit. So a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Go to DigitalOcean.com, use the promo code SNAPOcean and go create yourself a server. Free BSD, CoreOS and a bunch of other great operating systems available up on DigitalOcean.com Alan, you said you set up a mail server? Is that what you said you set up recently? Yes, I did. Uh, BSD? I to, yep, I, I had an older mail server and it was just old and yeah it well there are two things first uh i've used 50 different server providers around the world and DigitalOcean is still the nicest control panel there, I know, there's right? one that's almost as good uh and but it's by far uh the nicest one yeah uh the combination of looking nice which i usually don't care about but actually having all the functionality being easy to use and having all that functionality but making it easy to find yeah I've, a lot of the other ones it's like Ah, I can't quite find the yeah. piece I'm looking it's for. It's very clear. It's not distracting, but it's not too watered yeah. down either. It doesn't feel exactly. like it's a dumbed-down tool. Yeah, uh, it's and not then, Fisher Price, but it's it's got everything you need. If you wanted to, you could always yeah. dig into their API too. They have a pretty killer API. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's the best part on top of it all yeah. too. DigitalOcean.com, and uh, thank you guys. Go create yourself something and just play around, and that supports the show. You can do it two months for free. Snap Ocean DigitalOcean. Dot com. I love it. Okay, so uh, let's get into a crime as a service. Now, this to me sounds like a money maker, but Alan, I guess maybe as more people do it, the market responds and how much it's willing to pay. What's going on? Uh, so this is a uh, yeah cyber crime service economy is a story over at fastcompany.com, and it says in 2013 a pair of private investigators in the Bay Area embarked on a fairly run-of-the-mill case surrounding poached employees, mm. but according to a 
federal indictment that was unsealed on in February, their tactics sounded less like a California noir and something more like sci-fi. In order to spy on their clients' adversaries, the prosecutors say they hired a pair of hackers uh, from the internet. So Nathan Moser and Peter Suguaris uh, were working on behalf of an internet marketing company called Vicellus uh, to investigate a competitor which Vicellus uh, had sued for poaching some of their former employees. Mm. Uh, next, the government alleges that Moser and Sugusa, uh, a retired 28-year veteran of the San Francisco Police Department, recruited two hackers to break into the email and Skype accounts of the competing firm. To cover their tracks, uh, the communication was done by leaving messages in the draft folder of a Gmail account ah. rather than actually sending emails. That's what David Petraeus did, too. Yep. Uh, funny, the um, Gmail account was K-R-O-W-T-E-N.A.L-O-R-T-N-O-C, which, if you actually read it backwards, spells control a network at gmail.com. Yeah, good one. That seems to be a uh, kind of a popular methodology for passing communications back and forth is a shared Gmail account, storing the messages yeah, in drafts. Uh, I forget which intelligence agency first came up with that. I thought that was the CIA. Hotmail. I don't think so. Oh, okay. uh, but it was done at Hotmail a couple other places as well, yes. Uh, the California case sheds light on a burgeoning cybercrime market where freelancers hack both on public forums and in, on the black market, uh, cater to everyone from cheating students to zealous boyfriends to law firms and executives. Uh, some call it espionage as a service, mm. but really it's just, you know, thug for hire, crime as a service type thing. Yeah. Uh, while it's difficult to verify the legitimacy and the quality of hackers uh, posting on dozens of online exchanges that the Fast Company examine, some sites boast an eBay-like feedback mechanism that lets users vouch for uh, a reliable seller and warn each other of scams. Uh, one of the researchers describes a range of expertise from amateur teenagers wielding off-the-shelf spyware that could charge you a couple hundred dollars for a single operation to sophisticated industrial espionage services that uh, make tens of thousands of dollars and, uh, or more on smuggling intellectual property across international borders. So the threat landscape is very complex. A hacker group will sell uh, to whoever wants to pay them. At one of the forums they looked at, Hackers List, uh, for instance, hackers bid on projects in a manner similar to contract work sites like Elance. So this is a reverse thing. <laughs> yeah. You post a job and right. hackers bid on it. And Look you at that. One. Look at this. Uh, those oh, in the wow. market for hackers can post jobs for uh, free and uh, or pay extra to have their listing show up at the top of the site and be highlighted. Hackers generally pay $3 uh, each to bid on the projects, and then the users are charged uh, for sending messages back and forth. The site also provides an escrow service so that the hackers don't get paid until they actually do the work. <laughs> nice. Of course, the first question is, how much, do you sell, uh, how much do you trust a site to hold your money if it's selling illegal services? Yeah. Uh, it's like, it sounds like a Bitcoin bank, but right. less trustworthy. Or Silk Road. Silk Road worked kind of like this, too, with an escrow yeah. and all that. And then you would, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, in a report released in March, Europol, the European Union's law enforcement arm, predicted online networking sites and anonymous cash transfer mechanisms like cryptocurrencies will continue to contribute to the growth of crime as a service uh, to criminals who can work on a freelance basis facilitated by social networking online and its ability to provide a relatively secure environment to easy and easily and anonymously communicate. Yeah. Uh, of course, they say the environment isn't always that secure. Earlier this month, one security... Uh, researcher unmasked the apparent owner of Hacker's List hmm. and gave his name. 
I uh, said he, uh, Denver-based security expert. Uh, soon after, the Stanford uh, legal scholar crawled the site's data, revealing the identity of thousands of the site's visitors uh, and their requests for hacks. So it found all the people that were asking for stuff. Uh, the researcher found 21 satisfied requests, including one that said, I need to hack a Facebook account of my girlfriend, uh, which he paid $90 for. Another one where it says, I need access to a specific Gmail account, which was $350. And another one where I need a database hacked uh, because I need it for doxing, which was, uh, again, $350. And a majority of the requests for service involved Facebook for 23% of the projects, Google for 14 and uh, were usually sparked by a business dispute, a jilted romance, <laughs> or a desire to artificially improve their grades, hmm. with targets including the University of California, uh, University of Connecticut, and the City College of New York. Hmm. Uh, the Dell researchers, here's that graphic I was talking about, oh. uh, the Dell researchers uh, have year-over-year uh, -year statistics looking at uh, in the past how much some of these services cost and how much they cost now and see that things like denial of service attacks are getting cheaper as there are more people uh, selling them. Yeah, boy, going down quite a bit it looks like. Yep. A dollar to $30 for a hacking tutorial. Denial of service attack is in, in, uh, in 2013. Price per hour is $3 to $5. In 2014, it's still $3 to $5. Hours. Five dollars, but so that's for hourly. If you look at the yeah. weekly one, it's gone down a couple hundred dollars. Yeah, a week. yeah, it has. Yeah, it, from yeah, yeah, it has. And doxing has gone. Uh, doxing has been yeah. yeah. Whoa, and cryptors. That's new. I like that. They got a new yes. That's something new. Hacking tutorials. Uh, they weren't tracking in 2013 either. Right. Hmm. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I expect uh, more of the serious hacking forums, like the ones that targeting you know industrial espionage and so on, will go further underground and be harder to find and more exclusive about who they let on the site. And we'll find more of these obvious ones, uh, you know, where it's a bunch of teenagers and so on. And those ones, uh, as they become more popular, will likely be infiltrated by researchers like Krebs, although Krebs is good at getting all the way down to the bottom of that stuff. But um, also, you know, journalists, but also law enforcement. Yeah. Uh, and very soon, uh, they'll be arresting a bunch of the people that mm -hmm. are posting, you know, I'll pay $90 to hack into somebody's Facebook account. But the other one is I expect to see a lot of scams. Uh, you know, one guy can pretend to be a bunch of hackers, post this up, and <laughs> yeah. get a bunch of people to yeah. pay four hundred dollars for true. hacked Facebook accounts, and then just pocket the money and disappear. Or he'll have it; he'll be able to do it at scale. He'll do these things at scale, and just you know, yep. yeah. Huh. Right, but if it's, the scam part is more, you you, yeah. you pay money, you don't yeah. get anything, yeah, yeah. And you can't exactly yeah. go and complain to the no, police yeah, right. yeah, go report him to go report him to the Better Business Bureau. Yeah, I pay this guy to hack something for me, and he just took my money. Yeah. <laughs> It's not going to happen. And then uh, over at webpolicy.org, they have some more information on the hacker marketplace. And I do recommend you read the whole um, Fast Company uh, thing because they have a lot more research. They dug into a lot of this. Hmm. A very interesting scene, the, the Walmart of hackers out there, Alan. Go get yourself something, a nice cheap product. Huh. Good one, Alan. Any other thoughts on that story? Uh, nope. That's about it for that one. All right. Well, then I'm going to just take a moment, if I could, and rock your face with some knowledge about Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com to get a $50 service credit. It's only going to be good until the end of June. $50 service credit or $50 off your first Ting device. Now, why Ting? Ting is perfect for our audience. It's mobile that makes sense. And so if you're smart, you're analytical, you'll realize that mobile companies are making you pay for a whole bunch of stuff you're not using. You know, those minutes, the messages, and the megabytes. You have to kind of best guess, don't you? So I'm not going to make a lot of calls. So I probably need about 
about 400 minutes, maybe 500 minutes, just in case. I don't do a lot of texting because I have Telegram, but I might have something that alerts me. I might have somebody that starts robo-texting me. So I got to have some buffer in there, so I better have 200 text messages. But, of course, their smallest text message plan is 500 and that's $13 a month. But, okay, fine, I'll get that. And then I know I use at least 2 gigabytes of data a month, but maybe I'm going to have a busy month, so I might need to have 4, so I better get the 4 gig data plan. But 4 gigs isn't maybe enough. So, you know, like you have to do this sort of ridiculous dance. It doesn't make any sense, and you know that. That's where Ting comes in. Ting just does, Ting just pay, you just pay for what you use. Ting just takes your minutes, your messages, your megabytes, whatever you use. That's all you have to pay. It's a flat $6 for the line. And they just add up your usage and you pay that. It really makes sense. And then if you have any troubles, you get to speak with a human being. And look at all of the great devices at Ting. So starting at the real value end, $60 for the Kyocera Kona feature phone. That's a great deal. They also have the Hawaii U3900, U a little bit more expensive, $81. But now you're getting something that has a little bit better battery life, a little bit better screen, and a camera. This is a great phone because, remember, all of these are off contract, and you're only paying for what you use. So this is like you could stick this in the car, give it to a kid, a family member for an emergency phone. And then if you need something with a little more oomph, they've got the Moto G for $91, unlocked, off contract. You own it outright. The Samsung Nexus S, that's super cheap over there. You can also pick up the new Blue Studio Mini, a really nice quad-core Android phone for $111, or the Netgear Zing a $6 MiFi hotspot after you pay that initial purchase price. So many awesome devices over at Ting now. Look at the Moto, the Moto E just added. And of course, they also just added the Samsung Galaxy S6 and S6 Edge. And the real screamer in value, the Blue Studio 6.0 LTE for $185 from Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. Bring your own device. You've probably got a compatible device. And if you don't, then you can get a great discount when you go to techsnap.ting.com and support this show. Now, I don't normally do app picks on the TechSnap program. I save those for the Linux <laughs> Action Show. But this one is applicable to any of you who've switched to Ting after seeing our ads. This one's going to be really great for you. And this is one of the ways I manage my Ting account. So I want to tell you about this. Kyra's here with our TechSnap app pick of this the week. week. The Ting app is the Ting app of the week. It's also meta. I'm Kyra and this is the Ting app of the week. At Ting, we pride ourselves on giving you the tools to take control of your cell phone bill. Practically anything you do in your Ting account dashboard on a computer can be done inside the Ting mobile app. The usage panel shows how many minutes, messages, and megabytes your account and all your devices have used. Tap a number to check out recent activity on that device. Tap again for detailed event info. Easily enable or disable device settings, like international calling, internet access, and picture messaging. You can view your current bill and detailed billing history, and set alerts and caps to keep things under control. You can also give us a call, access our help site, or submit a help request right through the app. You can also stay up to date on the latest Ting news by hitting the blog. You could even watch this episode of the App of the Week featuring the Ting app on the blog within the Ting app. Just be careful not to create a glitch <laughs> in the matrix. That was good. The Ting app is available on Android and iOS devices and is free. You'll find links to the Ting app below. Or just search Ting in the Google Play or the App Store. Thanks for watching. Yeah, I actually really like the Ting app. And I can't think of any time I've ever said that about a carrier's uh, app. You know, I've used the other apps that some of the other carriers put out there, and they're usually like, that's they'll, they'll spam me about like some sports game I can watch on my phone or some new sale they have. The Ting app is really a useful app. The, all of the Ting service, it just works so well. Start by going yes. to techsnap.ting.com. Well, if we're on the topic of app picks, I have one yeah? for your phone. Yeah? Hurricane Electric, the people that do the free IPv6 tunnel broker and stuff, Yeah. they have an app 
for anybody who does anything with networking. It is great. Let me just pull it up here. Um, it has like all the network diagnostic tools you could ever need Ooh. bundled into your phone. Ooh. Here it is. It's called Network Tools by Hurricane Electric. Okay. And uh, you get uh, an ARP thing, a Bonjour browser, device manager, DNS tools, interface information, iPerf 2 and iPerf 3 for testing network performance, Mac browser, a ping, ping sweep, progressive trace route, an SL, uh, SSL and TLS analyzer, TCP port scan, trace route, who is, all the network tools you could ever need built into an app on your phone. I'm going to get it right now, Alan. Cool. Hurricane Electric makes it, huh? Very nice. Yeah. Uh, they're the ISP I have here at my house. Yeah, uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah, so uh, there you go. And that makes that makes your uh, Ting device a network admin tool. TechSnap.ting. Com. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got. A, I've also uh, got some killer Wi-Fi analyzers that have been extremely useful for figuring out like yep. uh, like where all of that uh, like oh, interference is coming from and what channels are more. Yeah, or which channels not yep. busy. And I remember yep. uh, John whipped that out at Linux Fest yeah. uh, last year. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my. Yeah, it's cool. It's really cool. So there's a lot. You get there's a lot of apps to turn that into a utility belt. All right, Alan. Well, guess what? We're all done with the top news story. So that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Uh, last year, I think is how you say his name, writes our first email today. And guess what, Alan? Right. Shocker. ZFS question. He says, hello, Alan and Chris. Historically, my storage solution has been to collect all of the unwanted PCs I can get my hands on, rip out the hard drives, stuff it into my Linux machine, and let each drive serve a specific storage need. You know, video, audio, backup, etc. A couple years back, however, the number of drives I have surpassed the specific storage tasks I have. Combine this with the fact that my audiobook drive was mostly empty while my videos drive was ready to warp its mother mounting bracket. And I added that part and just made sense to bite the bullet and use LVM and put all of the disks into one storage space. Needless to say, I'm biting my nails while uh, whenever I look at the days without a hard drive failure number on the chalkboard. My current plan is to move to a ZFS drive pool. Aside from knowing that this is a thing that I read I could do, I have no idea if this makes sense for my situation because I'm dealing with a wide variety of drive sizes from 4 terabytes down to 120 gigabytes and even 3 gigabytes when I'm feeling silly. It will uh, make sense to divide all of my disks into 120 gigabyte chunks and let mirroring spaghetti ensue. Or is there a better solution here at my 2.7 minutes of research that has failed to reveal? Also, how terrible is it the recovery process like this for this kind of setup? Thanks. What do you think, Alan? Yeah, so uh, the biggest problem is if... So in ZFS, you can just do uh, striping and just attach all those drives individually and get all of the space. The problem is if any one drive dies, every file is gone. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of what he's got right now. Run. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what his problem with his LLVM is. Yep. So my very first thing is I really do not mean to sound like a snob or, or <laughs> prudish or something, but if you really care about your files, yeah. don't use 8- or 10-year-old yeah. tiny hard drives. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, but at the same time, I understand. You know, I had it, my first ZFS server was actually something kind of like this, partly because uh, 
it wasn't that I was using old hard drives or anything, but I just kept adding more drives, and the newer drives were always bigger because yeah. that was the biggest drive you could buy at the time. So I had like two 320-gig drives and then two 500-gig drives and then two 1.5-terabyte drives and so on. Um, so in order to do with what he's, uh, deal with what he's got here, uh, what I recommend is pairing the drives off in the mirrors. So find the drives that are closest in size. So if you have two 120-gig drives, then that's one mirror. And then, you know, you, you have a 320 and a 500 gig drive. That's another mirror. You only get 320 out of it, but close enough. And uh, the main advantage to doing sets of mirrors like that is as long as one of the two drives survives, you'll still be okay. And um, whereas if you tried to put all the drives into bigger sets of mirrors or something, you wouldn't get as much of the space, right? If you put like a four terabyte drive and a 120 gig drive together, you only get 120 gigs. Um, and, and so on. But I definitely don't recommend trying to slice it up into a bunch of 120 gig chunks and do that. It's just uh, ZFS kind of expects each one to be a real disk. And so then when you're writing to two different uh, disks in ZFS, but it's actually both ending up on the same spinning disk, ah. you're going to uh, unstabilize all the performance. Yeah, that makes sense. Plus, if you lose one drive, you're going to take out all the 120 gig chunks that are on it. Yeah. And ZFS isn't going to know that. Yeah. Whereas if it knows it, It'll purposely start spreading stuff out and yeah. be like, okay, you need to store this thing in two places. This is important metadata. I'll make sure it goes on two di physically different hard drives. It can't do that if it doesn't know where the physically physical hard drives are. Great point. So I would uh, group your disks up into uh, the best matching pairs you can to waste as little space as you can. Yeah. And then use uh, that. The other advantage to mirrors like that is it's easier to add and remove stuff. Mm. So you know, if you have your 220 gig drives in a mirror and you decide that you now have two bigger drives and you're out of slots, you remove one or you uh, add the one bigger drive to that mirror so you now have three disks in the mirror. And once the big drive has enough, you can remove the smaller drives one at a time and replace them and basically in steps swap out the 220 gig drives yeah, for yeah. two brand new four terabyte yeah. drives and now your whole pool gets bigger by the you know four terabytes minus 120 gigs. Yeah. Uh, so mirrors just give you that much more flexibility uh, while at the same time still giving you the redundancy. It's brilliant. I highly recommend against ever having no redundancy, and I also recommend against trying to divide it up into a, a bunch of 120 gig chunks to get that little bit out, that little bit extra storage yeah. out of your yeah. collection of old hard drives. Yeah. Great answer. The downside to what like, we call unbalanced LUNs in ZFS, mm -hmm. where you know if you have a mirror that's too four terabyte drives and 220 gig drives is ZFS is going to split up the rights to them so that both mirrors will get full at the same time. So if you write 100 megabytes of data, most like 90% of it's going to end up on the four terabyte drive and only 10% on the 120 gigabyte drives. So then when you read it, you're not going to get the full mirroring speed you would get of reading half the file from each of the two sets of drives. Uh, and so you know, unlike some other solutions like LVM where it might actually try to evenly write to all the drives and then those ones are full and we'll just not use them later on, yeah. uh, it'll try to balance them out. Right. And uh, right. in doing so, you just won't get as much performance as you would have gotten if you had uh, more reasonably yeah. sized drives. That's a good heads up. So you can mix drive sizes, just don't mix them in the same VDEV uh, and, you know, always use mirrors. Yeah. Great answer. All right, so Tyler writes uh, yes. in. I know it's 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 compelling to use old hard drives, yeah. but well, don't we all honestly, want to? If I'm using a bunch of old hard drives, if I'm using old hard drives, I would use at least three deep mirrors, 
So I group it in at least three drives for every mirror so that even if two of them die, each mirror is still intact. What about like... Because if they're old, I don't trust them. What about, you know, not using them in, in a ZFS array at all? You save that for your real data and then just go buy a couple old used Drobos off eBay and just throw the old drives in that thing. <laughs> I know you would hate that. I, I know. Yeah. I know. All just, right. Let's get to Tyler's email. Tyler writes in. He says, hello, Chris and Alan. I'm a longtime listener. I need some advice about honeypots. I know I have heard of them mentioned before in the podcast, but I'm not sure how to implement one. My boss wants me to set up a honeypot on our network to go along with our IDS. I'm having some problems finding information on the best way to set one up. So far, I have HoneyD installed on a Linux server, but I'm not sure how to configure it. I would like to have HoneyD emulate, if that's even the right terminology, a Windows 2008 R2 or 2012 server and some Linux appliances, which makes up the bulk of our network. If you could point me to a resource to get this set up, it would be really appreciated. The ones I'm finding seem really out of date. Thanks for the great show, Tyler. I don't actually... I've never set one up, so I don't know. I, I looked at one piece of software called Labrea or something like that, because uh, it was Tarpit, um, back in the past because I was trying to add extra hops to a trace route just to yeah. for vanity, really. Yeah, yeah. And that was the extent of what I looked at. Um, I know of one, I know of one that is met. Uh, I know of one that's built. Oh boy! Actually, now that I think about it, okay. So there's a couple I know of. Uh, the one that I know of is is called Honey Drive, and it's it's created by uh, the folks that make uh, some some other exploit uh, and penetration testing stuff. And so Honey Tri- Honey Honey Drive is based on Ubuntu 12.04 LTS, and it contains up to ten pre-installed and pre-configured Honeypot software packages, such as like an SSH Honeypot. Uh, um, a, a ghost web uh, like fingerprint thing. I, I, I'm not totally familiar with all the all of the software that comes out of the, but the nice thing about it is it's using some of that company's included technology like their Kip graph to actually give you graphs and reports of the honeypot stuff. So then, because you, you know, what do you do with the data if if you do get somebody knocking on your door? They include the analysis for that, and it, it comes with sort of a GUI that you could like load up on a machine and just play around with it and stuff to kind of learn it. So and I know also, Alan, that there are some VMware appliances out there that are specifically like messed up and ready to be uh, abused. And I've used those in, in like some uh, I've used those in, in some show testing before. So there are a few out there. Uh, there's also a strategy stratagem, another mm-hmm. Linux honeypot distribution, but it hasn't been updated for a while. So based on, again, Ubuntu. Yeah, I think uh, most of the higher end ones are pretty commercial now. And that's yeah. 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 Um, yeah, generally the basic idea with the honeypot is is you let you leave it hanging out there and let it, uh, you know, for example, have it accept SSH connections no matter what username and password you put in, mm. and then if somebody retries it, then you know if they actually try to run a command or something when they connect, then you just blacklist their IP and don't let them connect to anything. So you know if you know nobody's nobody knows the IP of this machine, no one's going to randomly try to SSH into it. Uh, everybody who tries should just be blocked. Yeah, I think he needs to check out but Honey Drive. The, That's the one he yeah, needs to go with. The advantage to uh, the Honeypot idea is you actually see the command, with the username and password yeah. they're going to try, and yeah. the command they're going to try to run when it works yeah. so that uh, you have a better idea of what they're trying to do. You know how compromised you are. Are they really trying your legit stuff? Well, well yeah, yeah, you can find out if they're really trying yeah. to do But also, what commands are they going to try to run right. so that you can be like, oh, I'm going to add a rule to our... Uh, intrusion detection system that says, hey, if anybody, you know, tripwire or something, if anybody tries to run this command, 
nuke it. <laughs> now, <laughs> or, you know, drop the session. Uh, there's a lot of. I would also do some reading on how to properly implement honeypots because there's a lot of different philosophies. You can use them as just sort of a catch-all to see are we even being banged on. I don't think that's a very valid use of them because everybody gets knocked on. That's the way script kiddies work. There are other ways you can use them where you can get people to go in certain directions in your network and things like that. So Tyler, read up on some of that stuff. And also, there are some talks from conferences on YouTube. I don't know how you've been doing your Googling, but search around on YouTube for some talks and demonstrations. And I think that's probably going to be yeah. your best time spent for that topic. But yeah, basically, if you, if you can have a, a VM or whatever that's laying around inside your network, not accessible from the internet at all, and then you're just basically leaving it out there, making it an obvious choice. So someone's inside your network, and they do a scan or something, and they'll go for it first. Yeah. And as soon as you detect somebody actually uh, doing something on it, you can, uh, A, you know that somebody's inside your network, and B, you can try to lock it down quickly. Yep, there you go. There you go. All right, Kyle writes in uh, with a uh, Postgres question. He says, hi, Chris and Alan. A developer friend of mine is looking to deploy Postgres SQL and Ruby on Rails on Red Hat Enterprise 6.6 server using Docker in order to handle the back end for his web app that will be put into production in the near future. I heard about his plan and immediately alarm bells started going off in my head <laughs> uh, because of the many security problems that have been discovered in the Docker platform recently. <clears throat> that being said, my friend has no option regarding the server OS, sorry on my Canadian brother, and therefore wants to use containers. I guess he's not a big uh, uh, RHEL 6.6 uh, fan. Uh, um, oh, he says he's not familiar with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Given these requirements, what are the best practices he can follow to minimize security vulnerabilities in this deployment? Would a VM be a better choice, or is there some kind of other Linux container option that might be more secure? Thanks for the great show. I listen every week, even though system administration isn't my thing. Kyle. A VM might actually be a better option than a Docker, although with it being a, an SQL database, you probably get better performance mm. from the Docker. Mm. Yeah. It's, hey, wh what about this? Uh, don't run Postgres as root. I mean, that's going to be a huge part of it right there. Yes, obviously. And, and then, you know, uh, what his developer friend can do is if he keeps a copy of the Docker container as the master container on his machine and he keeps it patched and then uploads it to the hub and the people that are that have it deployed check out the new version from the hub and keep it patched, it's just as secure as any Ubuntu machine if you basically follow rules like don't run things as root and keep it patched. The problem is most people use containers as an excuse to no longer have to worry about security patches. Well, the host machine is getting patched and all of the stuff around me is getting patched, but my little Ubuntu world on this Red Hat box is never getting touched. And that is a problem. And that's what you want to avoid, I think, with Docker. I think that's going to be the long-term problem yeah. with Docker. A lot of these other little problems are going to get patched out with system updates over time. Uh, and I think right. the key thing and is the, just don't use root. Yeah. Because uh, really, the, the vulnerability you have with Docker is uh, someone will manage to get a shell inside the Docker because of a flaw in the Ruby on Rails code or so. It's something you wrote, probably, or maybe something in one of the apps you use or whatever. And then once they're in the Docker, they'll be able to somehow break out into the host. Uh, that's really where most of the problems in Docker lie are that various ways of breaking out into the host or accessing the host file system and doing stuff. Like I think they could overwrite the ETC shadow file at one point uh, <laughs> because if you're root in the Docker, you are UID zero. And uh, if you could mount the root file system, you could then read or write to the shadow file. And if you could write to it, then you could change the root password and then just SSH to the host and log in with the root password that you now know. Uh, or even if they disable the root login, if you have access to slash etc, you can edit the sshd config and change yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So that's really going to be your um, best. So I mean, in he general, shouldn't need yeah, it for um, a database. Biggest thing, keep it. Yeah, the database won't need it. If anything, it'll be the Ruby on Rails, and again, it shouldn't need it either. Yeah. You know, if you're <laughs> running it under nginx and Passenger or whatever you're going to be doing, uh, yeah. So 
it should be okay. You know, it's, it's too bad you're stuck with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Yeah. Especially since you don't know it, which makes, yeah. you know, causes yeah. that much more concern. Yep. But, go go you know, use our DigitalOcean promo code. If we, <laughs> right. If, if you probably have the same problem if I told you to use BSD in jail, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, if you don't yeah. know them, you can make <laughs> the same mistake. That is the issue. Uh, all right. Landon writes in from Nashville. He says, uh, let me start off by saying uh, I am a live audio engineer by trade. But it's amazing how quickly the field has become more like an IT job. And the subject is backup paranoia melts my face off. <laughs> I've been watching last for years and have been quietly watching TechSnap since episode one. It's amazing how much you realize you need to learn when you almost have 100 devices on a local network together, over 300 feet of home run Cat 5e cable. And, of course, you got segmentation, switch hops, network taps, packet sniffing, not to mention working around Wi-Fi complications at large-scale arenas. Maybe we can talk about all that another day. My main headache right now comes from a few data migrations and paranoia for data loss that I have developed over the last couple of years. He says, you're not going to point my fingers where that came from. I have a free NAS rig that I've been running since 2009 on different hardware over the years. To shorten the story, when I switched to ZFS, I had to offload all the data onto a Drobo. <laughs> and I was getting the hard... While well, I was getting... <laughs> Jeez, a Drobo and an external hard drive, so I had two copies. Oh, good. Uh, then I started playing with Windows Home Server 2011 while I was getting the hardware together for my new free NAS. Now I have three different copies of my data in different levels of sync, not knowing what is where, and to add to the complication of an external RAID 1 I carry and I travel with. Now... Do you suggest I merge all of this data and create one master copy without duplicates and go forward after that with my traveling external drive and LAN servers when I get home? I feel like I'm drowning in duplicates of my own data. What software do I need to compare files on FreeNAS, Windows Home Server 2011, and my external drives to dig myself out of this hole? How would you suggest getting out of this without losing danger? Any help would be amazing. Wow. Multiple copies of pictures, music. The biggest problem is... You know, having a backup is one thing. Having a copy that diverges is a different thing, right? So if you have the same data and you copy it and you have it on two different drives and you only ever upgrade on the first drive, it's easy to keep the second drive in sync by just copying things over. The problem is if you have your home server and you update stuff when you're at home, but then you take the backup with you on the road and update it there, now one file is newer on the first drive and one file is newer on the second drive and you have to try to reintegrate them. Um, and that's where, you know, trouble happens. Um, RSync has quite a few options for this. Uh, there's a flag where you can say, you know, don't update. So I'm copying everything from the NAS to the external drive. But if the file on the external drive is newer, don't overwrite it. Uh, that helps in most cases, although your problem can be if you've updated the file in two places. You know, if it's depending on the type of file, it's like an Excel document. You have to manually figure out or copy the changes from this one and the changes to that one and make a new file. It can get all kinds of complicated. Um, but yeah, rsync probably is the easiest way. Uh, you just have to read the documentation on it and make sure you use the right flag so yeah. that you say, don't overwrite a file if the destination file is newer than the source file. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that'll let you copy everything from the NAS to the external drive, skipping anything that hasn't changed, and copying everything that has and if the copy on this drive is newer, it won't get overwritten. Then you have to then do the rsync in the reverse, copying. That way, you'll only copy the files mm-hmm. that are newer that you just didn't overwrite mm-hmm. back to the free NAS. And it gets, and then you'll have to repeat that process if either has changed over the course of the way it was running, which could have taken a day. But rsync does seem like your safest bet when you're moving a lot of little files yeah. and stuff well, like that. And also, <clears throat> first. Take a snapshot on the free NAS, so if a file does actually get overwritten, you can get it back. 
That's a pretty good solution, Alan. I, I wasn't yeah. sure what angle to take with this, and I like that. That's good. Yeah. That's, parsing um, does a lot of all of that for you. So it's yes, a, yeah. but if you can, you'd want to keep your, re- your actual backup as read-only. Mm. So uh, one thing that we've talked about doing uh, in the ZFS book, I think it was in that ZFS book. If not, it'll be in the second one when it comes out. <laughs> I, I remember if it got cut first because the first book was already full. Um, but you know, if you have a, if you're using mirrors or whatever in your uh, FreeNAS, you can actually make the mirror even deeper. So you can basically add an external drive as an extra member of a mirror, uh, and then you can just offline it and put it, you know, in a cupboard or somewhere safe, even in a different building or whatever, in case the house catches fire. Uh, then later you bring it back and connect it again, and ZFS will be like, okay, this you're just missing this last three weeks of changes, and it'll just sync it back up. And then you take it offline again. And you can do that with multiple drives, right? So you can have, you know, once a week you bring out one of the drives and you end up with a, like a, a, a month-long rotation so that you have a snapshot of what your file server looked like from each week for the last month uh, in cold storage somewhere off-site. Uh, and that can be a cool one to, way to do it. Yeah, it really is. Uh, but obviously with ZFS, if you change that drive, you cannot reattach it to the mirror and, and catch it back up. Yeah. And that's why you want to, you know. But basically, that's the big difference between a backup and a copy. Mm. In a backup, you want to have multiple points in time, and the backup is read-only. Whereas when you have a copy, that's when you can get into the problem of, oh, it's diverged, and now I have changes on both sides that I have to reintegrate. Mm-hmm. All right. There you go. If you'd like to get your question answered on the show, email it to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Or guess what? We have a super handy contact link. You just use that, choose TechSnap from the dropdown, and the monkeys will send it into our inbox for a future episode. Or we've got that subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. Send your questions in. They don't always have to be about storage, but we do particularly like them because I know a lot of you out there are noodling around. Even if you don't have a problem now, you got to be like me thinking, what am I going to do on my next storage build? So it's always great to hear all these different ideas that people are kicking around. Uh, but we answer all kinds of sysadmin-related questions. Just send them in to us, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But now, with the emails all done, it's time for the TechSnap Roundup! Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Another roundup of stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show. But we wanted to give you some links to read up on your own. And a lot of these links came from our great subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. First one's making big news today. I just saw to the top of a couple of news sites before we started. Uh, the NSA's hacking surveillance powers were greatly expanded in 2012 by the Obama administration, according to new Edward Snowden leaks. Now, these are specifically authorizations that allow them to monitor what could be suspicious hacking activity, uh, either domestically or remotely. Uh, and now the idea would be that they would be something from the U.S. going outward or something from the outward coming into the U.S., but when you actually dig into it, it also looks like it runs into some surveillance of domestic use, including ones that involve law enforcement and things like that. What do you think, Alan? Surprised at all? Nope. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So how'd they pull it off? Uh, Good question, Alan. (laughs) They broke into internet cables without a warrant on American soil, Uh, in some cases without knowledge of the companies, in other cases with knowledge of the companies. And they also deployed uh, equipment with malware. Yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a reason why Cisco, for some of its customers, they didn't really name, maybe level three or something. Uh, they fake drop ship it to empty warehouses and stuff so that the NSA won't 
intercept it and fill it with spyware. You better believe it. I've been watching this for years. Robotic uh, surgery is coming, and hospitals are now testing leg time for robotic surgery 1,200 miles away. And I've seen some of the early days testing of this stuff, and it is amazing. Mm-hmm. And so basically, they're, uh, before, the most they'd ever done is from like a different room in the hospital. So you're talking, you know, under 5 or 10 milliseconds of latency. They were like, well, what's it actually going to be like if we do it from further away? So they did use something like FreeBSD's dummy net to uh, simulate a slower network. Mm. So they dialed up the latency to 200 milliseconds. And at that point, uh, basically because of human perception and so on, uh, the, the doctors didn't notice, right? Because, you know, trying to conceptualize 200 milliseconds is just yeah. too fast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, when they went to 300 to 500 milliseconds, they said it's, it gets a little rough. Um, if it's just a burst of lag, the doctors find that they'll just automatically wait a second for it to dissipate and then and yeah. then go and continue. But um, pretty much everybody found that after 600 milliseconds of latency, it just gets uncomfortable with trying to do surgery. So I'm 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 good with 200. I think I'm going to stick with the in the green there. Well, um, with 200 milliseconds, that's still enough to go from anywhere in the U.S. to anywhere in Europe. Yeah. And yeah, even the 300 milliseconds is—you could still get to Singapore and back, oh, right? So you can—you you should be able to go pretty yeah. much anywhere yeah. without having too much trouble. Wonder if they could use that. Uh, hmm, it could be interesting to see where they can what they can do with. That. Yeah, like uh, current latency from my house to Singapore is 235 milliseconds. Boy, and you thought pretty much in the acceptable range. You thought gamers hated leg. This is going to be a whole new generation of people that hate leg, Alan. <laughs> like, can you get all the patients at the hospital stop Netflixing? I'm trying to do surgery in here. <laughs> all right, let's talk about this story. Uh, this is too funny. Uh, another, an underground project has emerged after a bank staff accidentally emailed details about it to The Guardian, including PR notes on how to deny its existence altogether. <laughs> yes. Uh, so not just any bank, the Bank of England. Yes. Uh accidentally sent its top secret Brexit plan where they will exit the EU uh, to the newspaper Oops. <laughs> and including like you said details on how they would uh, deny its existence if it ever got hinted at and it's like well it's hard to do that when I have your plan along with your plan on how to deny your plan yeah yeah that's a bad one Alan that's a bad one yeah all right we have a uh, an article from uh, full disclosure or uh, cyclist.org we have an, a hardware clock a privilege escalation bug the hardware clock what yeah, so uh, there's the hardware clock utility on Linux machines. Sure. And in the main pages and the source code, it talks about how it's not a big deal if you need to set it set UID so that users can can pull the clock time directly from the hardware. Except for it really is a big deal uh, because it ends up running the date command, apparently. Uh. Um, so because the user controls the environment, if you're an unprivileged user and you have access to a system where they have the HW clock command as set UID, which... I don't remember if it said which distros do. Um, then if you set your path environment variable to, say, slash TMP, uh, and then in there you can create a shell script called date that then, you know, uh, CH owns your exploit to run as, or a shell or whatever program you want to be set UID root, uh, then basically when the hardware clock uh, tries to run the date command, it will find your date shell script instead of the real date command because it's first in the path, and it'll run it with a bunch of parameters, which will be ignored. And as root, your shell script will then uh, CH own and make set UID 
either a shell for you or the exploit you want to run. And now your, whatever code you decided is now run as root. Looks like it affects Debian and Debian-based derivatives such as Ubuntu. So a good uh, portion of Linux rigs. Yep. <laughs> uh, and they have a nice proof of concept. It's a couple of lines and shows you how you can, as a regular user, run any command you want as root. Love it. Love it. Hey, Alan, are you excited about Windows 10? We got uh, the pre-release versions uh, specs here. You're going to need uh, one gigahertz. When I saw the, um, the title of the article, which is a list of things that are going to be removed uh, it, as you upgrade from Windows 7 or 8, uh, I was like, oh, my God, how, much, how horrible is it going to be? Yeah. But it's not too no. terrible. No. Uh, support for floppy drives is gone, even USB ones. You'll have to uh, get the drivers from Windows Update or the, provider, or the hardware manufacturer okay. instead of them being included. Uh, the, one of the big ones, though, is DVD playback. Uh, you won't be able to play a DVD directly in Windows Media Player. Uh, you'll have to download something like VLC or, or have a pay for a DVD decoder. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also going to remove Solitaire and Minesweeper. No! They'll be available as separate downloads instead. Um, there was another big one, though. Mm. Anyway, there's a whole list on that article there. Uh, luckily, they have a list of programs they know don't work. They're taking away gadgets. To, yeah. Um, and a couple of things. Oh, one of the other big things is Windows 10 non-pro editions you won't have the option to not install Windows updates. Oh, my God. That is it. Yeah, you, only Pro and Enterprise will have the ability to defer updates. Yeah. Whoa. So I don't know if that means you have to reboot when they want to, but... I... I... I, I, I mean, so we have... So we have just crossed into the territory now when you buy an operating system, you no longer have control over when that operating system will update itself. Because it's Microsoft, I feel this is in the best interest of the internet, though. Right? Is, is the huge number of unpatched machines out on the internet not the source of most of our problems these days? Yeah, I'm just hearing a lot of quotes from RMS floating around in my head right now about... Right, and a bunch of other things. Yes, I, I'm not a big fan of this, but at the same time, I see how it's what we have to do. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's definitely a, a double-sided coin there. That one's, I, I, or, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's not like Microsoft <laughs> hasn't done updates before that remove functionality and features and disable stuff. Well, and most so, of the, no, they're not really removing anything too crazy. No, but like in the past, they've like had updates that broke Windows activation and made computers unusable. Uh, right. When they made changes to Windows Genuine Activation, and if I and 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 being able to defer that update meant keeping your saved a lot of people. Yeah. And, yeah, it's just you know, that's a big. Although thing. They, they've been pretty good about not having too many of those and yeah. pulling them quickly, yeah. but yeah, uh, I'll be you know if we'll I end watching. up on Windows 10, I'll have the Pro version. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, Although, I I don't know. I don't see myself staying on Windows much longer. Yeah. I mean, Windows 10 supposed to, you know, everybody thinks it's going to be a great release, so it, it'll probably keep a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, just, but uh, if I just give up gaming, then I don't really need Windows anymore. <laughs> right, or if you just hold on to Windows 7 for a couple more years, you probably Yeah, yeah. And, and, and by then I'll be old and... Yeah. <laughs> and, the, and the few games you want will probably work under FreeBSD. Exactly. Then. <laughs> All right, let's talk about this uh, story from the security Big legend. one here, yes. Yeah. Uh, the insurance company for Cottage Health, which is one of those uh, health providers that uh, was hacked, a hospital that was hacked, uh, is refusing to pay out on the insurance because of lax security practices and the fact that the 
data was stored on a server directly accessible from the internet with no encryption. Mm. Now, the problem with a lot of these policies is they have very uh, wiggly wording. It's like, uh, take reasonable steps. Uh-huh. It's like, well, what's reasonable, yeah. right? But, yeah, uh, I think it specifically mentions that the data can't be stored directly connected to the internet unless it's encrypted. Okay, well, I'll take that, I guess. Yeah, hmm. so uh, this might kick a bunch of companies in the butt yeah. to get them to start doing stuff because all of a sudden their risk mitigation from insurance doesn't apply if they don't. <laughs> but at the same time, I see this as uh, some companies are going to start marketing, uh, you know, meet the minimum requirements for your insurance by buying our software. Yeah. And I, this next story, honestly, <laughs> kind of makes me giggle a little bit. Well, uh, uh, for one sec. Yeah. Uh, somebody in the chat was mentioning, he's Im- imagining angry phone calls to ISPs over bandwidth overage charges due to Windows 10 forced updates. Ooh. Uh, Windows updates are distributed by CDNs like Akamai, which often have a box at an ISP. So if you're like Comcast or somebody, you probably already have a big box sitting in the, colo- uh, uh, the cable company's head end where the copy of Windows Update yeah, lives. And I'm so sure they actually download one copy of the Windows Update and every cable customer gets it from like, that without using any internet bandwidth. And, and Windows 10 would be smart enough, I would assume, on a tablet to not auto-update when you're on cellular, right? Because, you know, Windows... Like, I would yeah, assume... So, you know, I, I tell my phone. Yeah. No, my Google phone's like, yes, I'll be smart. I won't back up your pictures unless yeah. you're on yeah, Wi-Fi. exactly. So on. Uh, all right. Well, this one makes me giggle and maybe hopefully uh, is not a sign of things to come. The self-parking Volvo plows into a journalist after the owner neglected to pay extra for the feature that stops the car from crashing into people. That's right. It's an extra yeah. if you want it to avoid people. Now, I, I got to play this video, Alan. Do so, you mind? So, so yeah, um, the self-parking feature is one feature, but yeah. pedestrian detection is yeah. a separate feature that not everybody buys. All right. So we're watching this video here. They're driving this Volvo. And it's going to park itself, which, you know, parking can be a difficult thing. All right. And now it looks like it, the car has stopped. Everything, Everybody is safe at this point. I don't see any problems. About halfway into the video now. And the car has begun moving forward. Oh, no. Oh, there no. Oh, Jesus Christ. Oh, gosh. That was going awfully fast for parking. Oh, my gosh. I did not expect it to be that violent. No, why? Well, like, the self-parking cars are usually quite slow right just like yeah the thing really the thing yeah the thing really <laughs> boom it's like accelerate it's like <laughs> i hate people <laughs> <laughs> jeez jeez Sentient cars wow uh so yeah is uh it's uh yeah it does not have pedestrian detection this is a separate sold as a separate package according to the volvo spokesperson jonathan larson yeah so Yikes. it'll self-park but if you want it to not run people over that's separate <laughs> my question there was somebody in the car driving right I guess the two men uh, were bruised, but are okay, uh, according to the sources that wrote the blog. Uh, yes, and well, uh, cars nowadays actually have very good uh, stuff about not killing pedestrians. We'll have a link to that video in the show notes if you were if you're listening and wanted to see that. Um, it's a little uh, startling, though, so you could skip it if you need to. Yeah. Uh, all right, Alan. Our next one is actually a Slexi post from uh, some submitter named Alan Jude. Not familiar yes. with it, but it's about journalistic integrity. Yeah, I got a, an email... Uh, from this place called CIOreview.com. And they, at first I was kind of interested. So Scale Engine is shortlisted for the top 20 most promising content delivery networks. Uh, and they're like, oh, we're going to feature you in our magazine, blah, 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 blah. Um, however, you uh, need to pay us $3,000 or we're not. <laughs> well, it's like, what? really? 
It's like, well, we've surveyed your organization's points of interest, blah, 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 blah. We do look for an ostensible sponsorship of $3,000. Here's what you'll get. You'll get the right to reprint your page in our magazine. And it's like, what? No. <laughs> I love the journalistic integrity of we've picked you as our, to be in our top 20. We'll only publish you in the top 20 if you pay us $3,000. Yeah, $3, wow. That is... I went and looked at their website. I thought it, at, for, at first I was mixing it up with one of the actual CIO magazines that's mm-hmm. actually printed. Yeah. It's a real magazine. Yeah. But this just looks like a, a website made to look almost like that, but you can just tell it's pretty garbagey. And uh, I did some searching on it and found a bunch of other people seeing the same scam, including some people back in 2013 seeing the same scam. Back then it was only two grand, not three. <laughs> they raised the rate. <laughs> Alan, uh, watch out if you're using Tor for something dirty, because uh, it looks like Tor connections to hidden services could be easily de-anonymized. What? Right, well, because of the way uh, Tor actually has an index of where the hidden services actually are, well, if you stay online really well, you can actually end up getting elected as the per- as one of the nodes that's going to have that list. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, researchers managed to become like four of the six nodes that hold the list. Uh-huh. And with that, we're able to actually watch everybody that was trying to look them up and figure out where everybody was going. That seems like a, that yeah. seems like a big problem. Yeah. So while Tor is decentralized, there, you know, there has to be a central index for a bunch of stuff. And it's the weak point at the moment. Yeah. Hmm. But the paper's there and you can take a look at it. It's okay. quite interesting. All right. Well, uh, our next uh, post here is uh, a uh, Intel Kernel Guard technology post, instruction using curls, scripts to download and install IKGT. What the heck is IKGT yes. for Debian uh, Intel Kernel Guard technology. Oh. Basically, it's a kernel module yeah. that can then talk to the CPU. something that runs, uh, if you go to the overview for the graphic. Uh, okay. But So this is the thing that's supposed to help protect your machine from exploits and so on and make your machine more secure and stop somebody from modifying your kernel. I see. With a root yeah. And the install instructions are curl this URL and yeah. pipe it into bash and let it just run whatever commands it wants. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's the how you install security tools. Yep. The hell. Yep. But uh, it looks like a fairly interesting technology. It uses the um, virtualization stuff. Uh, in your processor, even though this is running on the original host, basically allows you to use the virtualization table, uh, second level translation table stuff, to mark the kernel, the space that your kernel is in memory as read only, so that your kernel can't be modified once it's running. Clever. Possibly this could break that uh, install update the kernel without rebooting feature, uh-huh. but yeah. I think even in that one, you're actually not overwriting the kernel in place, you're making a new kernel and then switching to it. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. Uh, it looks like a cool technology, although the install instructions make me head desk. <laughs> All right, I love this idea. This ad for banned food in Russia hides itself when cops walk up. Yeah, so it's selling uh, Italian food, which is illegal to import in Russia currently. But it has a camera that looks out, and if it sees the insignia or the badge or whatever of uh, various police services and so on, yeah. it switches the ad to show like a local movie or, or something that would be allowed. That sounds legit. I think I would go for that. I, I, uh, what could be the problem? The problem is when I'm watching it, uh, it's too slow. Okay, so here it is from yes. 250 meters away. All right, well, now, what is this? All right, so uh, I'm looking for it here. Yeah, okay, this has got to be a joke, right? Okay, so they got, they got people walking up. People walk by. It doesn't do nothing. It doesn't do nothing. Cop walks by. Now, look, the cop can see it flip. Watch, cop walks up. It's yeah, it's, if anything, it's going to draw more attention to it. Yeah, that's why I think this is a gag. That's got to be a gag, right? I don't think it's a gag. It's just technology that doesn't work very well yet. Yeah, right? That's very true. 
Uh, okay, let's talk about an emulator that now runs x86 apps on the Raspberry Pi. Right, so they've had this emulator for ARM v7, which includes the Pi 2 for a while. Mm. But they've just extended it to also be able to work on the original Pi. And uh, as part of that, also made it faster on the Pi 2. Uh, so this will let you run unmodified regular x86 apps on your Raspberry Pi and Pi 2. Cool. I think this individual app's not the whole OS or something, sure, but sure, yeah. it does make it uh, possibly very interesting to do some stuff that's not ported to ARM yet. Uh, so uh, Amit uh, and his colleagues say that, guess what? Uh, our security is stuck in the dark ages. Uh, the RSA president says this at the keynote last month. Uh, a lot of people say the essentials are right, but things uh, are not necessarily as bad as he makes it out to be. Yeah, things are bad ages. and getting worse, though. And I think he that's probably not untrue. Yeah, it's hard to tell because there's so much hype around cyber and attacks and blaming Russia and China all the time. But it does seem the underlying technology is getting to a point where it's old enough that old bugs have worked their way into the system that are biting us over and over again now. Yep. And you just can't deny that we have tons of routers out there with vulnerabilities in people's homes. We've got a lot of machines that aren't getting patched. So, yeah. And as we deploy more systems, there's more of that code sitting out there. So, I guess... Yep. Just means how well we manage it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, there's a good article over at ReadWrite that says that maybe online voting isn't going to be a pipe dream overall. Researchers have devised After a system all. that looks secure. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, the researchers have devised a system that looks secure, but guess what, Alan? They say it's not very easy to use. Yeah, so it's a secure voting system. They have the research PDF paper on top of the story here. Uh, and with it, neither the de voting device nor your computer can actually tell how you voted although it seems to be uh, kind of hard to use. And looking at the image there, it looks like you have to do some math or something. And Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's going to be a good one. <laughs> well, at least they're working you know, on it, Alan, I guess. If they come up with the security part, they might be able to then work with a user interface yes. engineer or something to yeah. actually make it a little more usable. Yeah. If you uh, can make Bitcoin usable. Starting with something secure and then making it usable is probably better than make, you know, have somebody come up with a nice GUI interface and then try to add security on after the fact. Something we've learned repeatedly. Mm -hmm. All right, the last link in the roundup this week is a tool to remind you you need to be careful. Uh, not to abuse it, but it is an interesting tool. It's a GitHub comment crawler that continuously monitors github.org for mistaken public comments. So it's called GHCC. It enumerates members of the GitHub organization. It looks for their public comments and, and phrases those comments for, uh, and parses, I'm sorry, those comments for keywords and regexes that may contain sensitive information, API keys, SSH keys, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, now, to make it easy for you, it's ready to go with a Docker container so you can get up and going in no time, and then you can run this script, and it will continually watch and create a uh, nice report for you. Look at this, Alan. Look at that. Yes, so you don't accidentally commit your Amazon EC2 keys to GitHub, which we saw before. Yep. Now, interestingly, I guess I, I have a story about GitHub that got bumped in next week, actually, uh, but it was... Um, a bunch of people, including on large open source projects, had weak SSH keys that people mm -hmm. could possibly uh, uh, generate clones for or whatever, and then would be able to commit stuff to GitHub. GitHub has since revoked all of those SSH keys, but it was interesting that people had SSH keys weak enough that yeah. they could have been a problem yeah. on big open source projects. Yep. And uh, so it's good to have tools out there. So if you have a project out there, you can audit your own. But yes, uh, yes, you should be careful. Don't commit your config files with your database configuration or your API keys and things like that. You have to, you know, make liberal use of that git ignore thing and make sure your only the files you want are actually getting pushed out public. Alan, let's give people a pro tip. Uh, we'd like to have you watch live next week. We'll be back live on Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is. 
4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 UTC. Boom. You can also join us at jblive.info, which is the audio-only stream. That's great for you commuters. Maybe you're stuck at a desk or in a low bandwidth situation. You don't have video access. jblive.info. Listen live and hang out in our chat room. Go to irc.geekshed.net and join Pound Jupiter Broadcasting. Also, don't forget we want your emails. Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and send in your emails to the TechSnap program. And you can also participate in our subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. Grab an RSS feed and get the show automatically every single week. Those are right underneath the download links at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And notes and links to everything we talked about today will be with also, I might add, extensive detail listed in our show notes. Just go find episode 218 over at Jupiter Broadcasting, scroll down, and you'll see all of the notes. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the TechSnap program. We'll see you right back here next week. 